1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to start there in verse 18. Although I know that was part of last week, I'm going to use it as an introduction. We're going through our series in 1 Corinthians, and it's very important instruction that Paul is giving to the church. So we're going to start in verse 18 today, and I want to encourage you, if you're taking notes, have a pen. I do have some PowerPoint slides, some scripture references, and I've been told by some of you that we, do it, we, keep the, we don't keep the things up long enough to write them down. So keep that in mind today, Hannah, as we keep those slides up a little longer for people to, if, they're writing, if you're writing things down, those of you online as well. So remember that, Tobias. People are saying it's, it goes too fast. So, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now I'm sure Pastor Pete did a fantastic job. I look forward to listening to his message as he touched on this scripture, I believe, last week. The whole idea here, as Paul sets up really chapter 7, is he's answering questions. The Corinthian church has questions, and they have problems, and so this person, Chloe, who we think is a man, actually, writes to Paul, well, you know, he has gone from Corinth now. Paul planted the church there, and he says, you know, Paul, there's some problems in the church. And here's some of the things. Are these things okay? And Paul's like, uh, no. You need to get your act together. And he starts this section by, and as we talked a couple weeks ago, you can look up that online. But I went in detail about sexual sin and what the Bible calls us to, because it really God calls us to freedom of sexual expression within marriage. And all the statistics I showed you that married couples have better sex more often um, than those who are not married and that it is encouraged in marriage. So, But this is a hot topic, so there's no rating on the, on the sermon today, but certainly we'll see what the Lord does. So when Jesus died on the cross, he bought the lives, if you will, or redeemed us, is a better word of of from remove the the ownership of the enemy from us, and Paul says because of this we need to honor God or glorify Him with our very bodies, our very bodies. So God expects me to manage my body. This is really important. Number one, so everything is permissible. The Bible says when God expects me to manage my body, He is talking about the place where He lives. Not everything is beneficial, Paul says, um, but I won't be mastered by anything. He says, I understand I can do anything under grace, but I understand that there is a point that comes to that my body is really on loan from God and I need to take care of my body. And he talks about this in terms of sexuality. Destructive physical habits or other things, smoking, drinking too much, uh, eating too much, surfeiting, the Bible says, you shouldn't overeat. Uh, scripture talks about these things. These are all things because God is concerned about the body. In fact, the old Jewish dietary laws were because God knows what's good for the body, right? They weren't supposed to eat the, the pigs and the bottom fish that we all love so much, the lobster and stuff like that. 
Because really, and science knows it, that the fat is marbled in with the meat in these animals. can't be cut out like you can cut out other meats. And that fat portion, to an excess, is not good for your heart, right? These are things we know now, but God has always known them. But specifically in context here, though, Paul is talking about sexual sin. And, and we talked about three weeks ago that, that God doesn't want us to have sexual sin in our life, and our body, to, to be looking at pornography or to have uh, extramarital relationships or physical relationships or uh, participate in, in, in lewd things. Um, the Bible calls lasciviousness or fornication, moral filth is what that word means. So sexual promiscuity is what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about this in a very, very much, very real way that, hey, guys, take care of this. And if you're a believer, part of our life of worship is to worship God with our bodies. Our body is God's property. And the body is not meant for sexual immorality, in verse 13, he says, but for the Lord. It's for the Lord. Our culture teaches that we can do whatever we want with our bodies, but God created our bodies. So really, we, need, we don't have a right to share them with anybody that we want. We are united with the Lord. So there's some things about our body. Number one, my body will be resurrected after I die, right? So I think that being by a graveside will be the most cool thing when the return of Jesus happens. Can't you just see those graves opening up and all of that stuff coming, or from the ocean, the sea gives up their dead as well. All of it just comes together, and our bodies are reassembled miraculously. So God raised Jesus from the dead, and one day, Scripture says, He will raise us from the dead as believers in Him, and one day He's going to resurrect a new version of this body. Praise God, it's a new version. Yeah. Amen. Let's get rid of this old one. <laughs> just had enough of this already. Lord, thank you, Jesus. My body will be resurrected after I die. Secondly, my body is connected to the body of Christ. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Wow, that's a powerful thought, really. That God considers sins against the body to be a special class because your body, if you will, is connected to the body of Christ. That we have this connection with Jesus in our actual bodies, that we give him glory and expression with our bodies. We're made with an upright posture and hands that can raise and lift and adore and we have all this ability to speak and communicate and give adoration to God in a way like nothing else has in all of creation. The Holy Spirit, third, fourthly, lives also in our body, in my body. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? In verse 19, now, earlier when he spoke of that, the Holy Spirit being in the temple, he was talking about the church as a whole. And we're, when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, he's really talking about the Holy Spirit's work in the church body, the family of God. We are the family of God. When I was in, when we were in Texas a couple weeks ago visiting with my son and Sugar, we, were, we went to a church, and they, that was the body of Christ as well. We went to church. I go, yes, to church when I'm on vacation. I can't not go to church. I don't know how people can go on vacation. It's like I'm taking a break from God. No, because the body of Christ to me is important. It's being a part of the body. And that fellowship I have here today is equally as important. It's a precedent set by Jesus himself and an early pattern of the apostles in the church that they met together consistently. 
God's presence is in the tabernacle, the ark, the fire, the cloud, the wind, all in the Old Testament. We saw a couple of weeks ago in the church gathering, as I mentioned, and now he says, in our very bodies. Your body that you can pinch and say ouch to is where God dwells, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were walking down the street and you saw uh, during the week, and let's say I was gone, nobody was in the office here, Pam was gone, Pete was gone, Josh, nobody's here, Jesse's not here, Noah's not washing toilets or whatever, nobody's at the church, and you saw a gang of people like, like terrorizing the building. And you would be like, I'm calling 911, you'd probably get out of your car, hey, that's my church, that's, hey, get out of here, you'd scram, I've had to do that before, actually. Scram! Get out of here! You know, I don't know what kind of superlatives you might use. I'm not sure. Get lost! Get out of here! What are you doing? Well, how you feel about that is just in comparison, a small way of how God feels about his body. That he loves his body. He loves the body of Christ. We are his bride. And how we treat our body is how we're treating the Lord. If we understand this level, we're we're understanding another great significant fact. This sixth one is that Jesus bought my body on the cross. He says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body in verse 20. Now, if you want to know how much you're worth, we can simply look to the cross. Jesus, with his hands outstretched, says, this is how much you're worth to me. As he gave up his body so that we could be the, his temple and his dwelling place. You are infinitely valuable. You are. Taking care of your body is not just physical discipline, but a, it's a spiritual discipline, an act of our worship. It's about not just about uh, losing a few pounds or, or staying in shape so that we can live longer or trying to look nicer. God created your body and Jesus died for our body. And the Holy Spirit lives in you. You and I are connected to the body of Christ and it's going to be resurrected one day. Praise God for that. When it is, God is going to hold us really accountable how we treat his body. In fact, Jesus says in one point, he says, how you treat, basically how you treat the bride is how you're treating me. And the bride is the church. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul writes again, and he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Are we catching that? Have you ever imagined the idea that how we care for our body is a spiritual act of worship? We might say, well, coming into church and raising our hands, maybe Troy's leading a great chorus. Holy, holy is our God Almighty. Holy, holy is He. I don't know what he's singing. He's singing something really high. <laughs> and we're worshiping. And we're in this room where Jennifer led us this morning with it. Worthy is your name. Does that sound like something about worthy? Similar. Um, we're worshiping. That's worship, right? And in the room as we gather, it's not unimportant, very significant. But the minute we're done with church and we go out to the buffet or we hook up with that person on the weekend, or we treat our body in such a way as to where we're discarding it, not caring about how it's, then it's how we're thinking about Christ. In fact, Paul says it very pithy here in Romans 12, this is your spiritual worship. 
how you are treating your body is your spiritual worship. It's just as important as us coming, in the, coming into the room and saying, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, oh Lord. And how we love that. We worship him and we feel his presence. Don't you feel his presence now? I do. And we just, Jesus, Jesus. When we go out, when we treat our bodies, when we participate in sexual immorality, something that is not pleasing to the Lord, we're not acting with spiritual worship. The Bible gives warnings about all kinds of things, laziness and stress. Proverbs is riddled with stress advice and, you know, overeating again. All these things. Luke chapter 21, Jesus says, watch out. Do not let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of life. Stress, don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come up on everyone living on earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. As Paul talks about all this, that was the introduction, praise God. As Paul talks about all this, he directly gets into marriage. Now I realize in the room today, not everybody here is married. How many single people do we have? Wow, we got a good handful of single people. Next week is for you. Just saying. And Wednesday, if you want more in-depth, Wednesday we're going to be talking about his other issue here called divorce and divorce and remarriage and grace-filled. And you want to be part of that conversation, be here for Wednesday Adult Interactive at 7. Because there's so much in this chapter, we can't do it in one Sunday. But I wanted to stop here and bring us to a topical issue from the scripture and bring us to some principles for marriage. Now Paul extends his instruction by going straight from sexual sin in the body to marriage and how we should treat sex inside of marriage. Sex and singleness and abstinence. And he refers again to the former letter that he wrote. We know this is probably 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is probably 4 Corinthians, and there's probably maybe one after even. I think that the Corinthians, um, he was so mad at them, he wrote some stuff he probably shouldn't have, <laughs> so they threw him away. I don't, I'm just kidding. That's not, it's just, but they're, you know, Chloe's writing all this stuff, and he's getting these letters, he's going, what is going on with this church I planted? These people, and they're behaving like the culture. Remember how wicked Corinth is, right? It's just, it's just awful. So, he writes to them, and he is dealing with this series of questions. And, they, and Chloe's writing these letters. And, and so at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, he writes this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, he's referring to their questions, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Pretty plain. Um, the Greek literally means touch a woman. The, the NIV says married. but Just scratch that out in the NIV. You know, the King James is a little chicken sometimes too, but right there it's really chicken. Uh, really in Malachi as well where it says, uh, he shouts to the mountain, grace, grace. The NIV says, God bless it. You have my permission to blot the God bless it part out and write the word grace in. You can tell Zondervan they were wrong. Okay, that's, that's all right. Anyway, that's all, let's forget about Bible translations for a moment. 
The Greek word literally means to touch a woman. And the closer look, the root word means to wrestle or grapple. I mean, um, touching, very close in the ring. So a man and a woman in close intimacy and physical relationship and contact. So the implication is clearly a sexual relationship. And he sets the ground first by saying it's good that a man doesn't do this to a woman. Then he says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, remember the culture, Corinth is like Las Vegas on steroids. It's, it's crazy. Or that island that the politicians went to. Anyway, let's not go there. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The really crucial word here is have. That they should have, a man should have his own wife in an intimate relationship. So he, he tells the Corinthian church that they should be faithful to their partners in marriage sexually. It's an important that we remember Paul has just dealt with an incestuous relationship. Remember, a guy in the church is having sex with his stepmom and they're celebrating it. I mean, these people are off their rocker, right? Now, I want to stop and say very importantly that before we continue on this, if you have been married and there's been an adulterous relationship or you have been in a situation where you have been unfaithful or a spouse has been unfaithful, the grace of God is sufficient for you. He can heal and restore. There are a plethora of testimonies how people have said, God, forgive me, help me, been reunited with their wife, and God has restored their love, restored their passion, restored it into such a way to what they went through now is all for the glory of God. All right? So if you've been there, I don't want you to hear this sermon and, and get all beat up walking out. Boy, I'm never going back there again. Listen to what Pastor said. I only want to lay down these things because they're important because as was happening in the Corinthian church, they were all sleeping around. In fact, in the church foyer and getting drunk off the communion wine. These people, it's just, it's something. Because the pattern of their culture was the temple the, 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 had a thousand priestesses that were prostitutes and they had sex in the foyer. And they had these little places. And these prostitutes would get venereal diseases. They had little shrine gods they would go and bring offerings to to try to get cured. For. It was just, you know, they didn't have the Mayo Clinic or, you know, whatever we have. <laughs> Stuff like that. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is a big difference from their culture. Trying to set the standard, Paul is, of what God desires and wants because he knows from Scripture, God's plan for a man and a woman in marriage. Not two men, not two women, not man, woman, woman, or woman, man, man. But one man and one woman, and that they should guard this and take care of it. In other words, this is very different from the culture. This is very different from everything outside the, the walls, Corinthians. Abundant life is very different from... I was in the airport yesterday, right? We got home late last night. I was in the airport, and there's, you know, those 
scrolling TV banners and it's it for some perfume or whatever. Talk about lewd and provocative. And, and it's nothing now, as we read the stats a few weeks ago, for young people in junior high or high school to see their peers naked, social media. These are things that are happening. And we homeschooled our kids but as hard as that is homeschooling, these vices in our world, they're in the culture. We live in the filth of the world. And just as the Corinthians did, Paul was saying, hey, be a counterculture. Don't just be a subculture. Be a counterculture. Allow God to give you freedom in your marriage. And he talks about the significance of that. And he, he goes against the Corinthian perversion, and just like we have in our world, and a man should not dominate his wife, and a woman not dominate her husband, but in, in a Christian marriage, there's mutuality and agreement in sexual relationship and sexual expression. Um, the, this is radical to the Corinthians, as it is in our generation, in our day, but they were celebrating, like I said, this man, man and his stepmom in their church. They were proud, in fact. The Bible uses that word proud, of what was happening. And so this is a far cry from where we are at Abundant Life. We're not celebrating that. Nonetheless, we see the significance and the, the uniqueness and beauty of sexual expression in marriage. But Paul doesn't give a rip about what culture's doing, and we shouldn't either, friends. We should care that they're lost, but the lost are going to be lost. They're going to do what they're going to do. And Paul says, hey, if they're on the outside doing what they do, they're going to do that. But if they're believers, make sure that you understand that this is what God's best is for your life. And we're all striving for God's best, are we not? We want to be Christ followers. We not be perfect, right? I mean, Dale's got some stuff that he's good at that I'm not. Lamont, he's doing good things here. I'm not so good. We're all working, right? We're all like, ah, this angle, this is hard, this is difficult for me, but it seems to be so easy for you and... And we all understand that grace, deference in the body of Christ. We're not slamming one another, but we call into judgment things that are sinful so that we can say this is God's best. This is God's plan. And this is what we should pursue and strive for. So the exclusivity of marriage and that relationship is, is significant. He says something interesting in verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another except for a time of prayer and fasting and because of the present time. He says that it's so wicked that you need to do this so that I believe you can resist the temptation of the world. So first of all, it, it's good for our husbands and wives to pray and seek God together. We need to be praying together. Time to go somewhere and pray. Pam and I had a need the other day and, and we prayed together about it just the other morning. And that afternoon, something opened up that we hadn't heard, hadn't happened for about a month. I'm telling you, when you pray together and you say, God, this is, and you know, that's, that's how we pray in faith, right? We say, God, this is our desire. And we trust him with the results. He knows best. But then we say, God, you know. We need this answer. We, we're desiring, and he provides as a loving father as he does. We go, wow, thank you, Jesus. You are good. Um, time to go somewhere and pray alone is important. Secondly, he, he adds concern over the time in which they live. And he says there's a mounting persecution of the church. All this is happening, rising tension in the Roman government, especially as they were everywhere. Finally, the Corinthians resisted them. But 
And since abstinence was the only viable form of birth control, having a baby in the middle of chaos, poverty, persecution would be more torturous than fear, and the fear of war, famine, or further contention. There are some interesting things I think that Paul's giving answers to, and, and at the same time he says, have kids. And in verse number 6, look what he says. Now is a concession, not a command, I say this. So first of all, he's saying that what I just said was from the Lord. Married couples need to protect intimacy in marriage. He says in verse 7, I wish that all were as, my, or as I myself am. He's single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is be better to marry than to be aflame with passion, right? To be overburdened with lust. Now, Paul interjects his advice here based on what he knows what has saved him personally, and he says so. He says, because the time we live in, it's better to be unmarried. Remember, we were talking about a guy that is in love with Jesus, pursuing Jesus. His mission is to live for the gospel of Christ. That is his goal in life. So, and, and for those of you theological nerds, the Bible really never says whether he was married or not, and some think he was, based on the time it says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Um, don't we have the right to take a believing wife, he says, as, as some of the other apostles do. Um, he may have been married at one time, although unlikely. He never mentions it in anything he writes. Um, he, he declares that he has the gift of celibacy. He says this openly in 1 Corinthians 7 here, as we just read. So Paul's co 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 statement to the unmarried is, and widows to, in the Corinthian church, and widowers, I would add, is he gives advice that he was not married at the time of the writing of the letter and, and that he was perfectly content to do so. So another side bit, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you, it, you had to, and he was headed that way, um, but nonetheless, never says he was. So anyway, nonetheless, forget that. Set aside. Most likely you will be married. 85% of Americans get married. They just do. It's the way it goes. And, and so the reasons for marriage are really important. And the big purpose in Christian marriage, and hear this, friends, is to defeat Satan's goal. Right? To defeat his, his goal is to defeat the spirit of marriage. Family is God's very first institution, in fact. Marriage, the biggest part of that. And there are purposes I want to list, and I'll try to go through them as quickly as I can. Six reasons that the Bible gives for marriage. Number one, companionship. The oneness of marriage is important. In the garden, in Genesis 2.18, God said, It's not good that man should be alone. But I'm going to make someone for him, a help me, an encourager, someone to be with him, to communicate with him. I don't want him to be alone. So God creates a woman. There's a oneness in marriage. When you get married and, you know, you have that, you've seen that, those graphs that show the first five years and then there's this disenchantment time and some go like that, some go at different space of times and and I know a couple couples that we've never argued our whole married life. I'm like, wow, that's like, I mean, Pam and I just celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary um, last Sunday. 
And I would say she would say it's probably good 30 years of happy marriage. Uh, maybe. We have times, don't we? We're a people. And men, we are not always right. That's just the way that it is. And women, you're not either. Um, it's, it's good to know that. But there is companionship in marriage. When you go and you do something alone, I like to do things by myself sometimes, but I, you can't do that forever. It's nice to be with people, and that companionship is important. Number two, pleasure. God intended physical intimacy to bring pleasure. He created parts of our bodies for that very reason. Hebrews 13.4, the writer writes this. He says, marriage should be honored by all in the marriage bed, kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. God intends really for our physical intimacy to give pleasure. That's really important. A third purpose of marriage is completeness. Genesis 22 verse 3, um, Adam said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh shall be called woman. And I think the reason he called her woman because she was naked. And God was there, and when Adam saw her, God had to say, Whoa, man! Oh, <laughs> yes, that was a Larry joke. Um, completeness, though, is in that sense of being together in oneness. God intended for married couples to have further spiritual power and effectiveness as well in this oneness. God intends for married couples to be one in spirit. 1 Peter 3.7 echoes this all the louder. As Peter writes, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Okay, here we go. Here come the feminists. Here come everybody else. I just want to say, any woman here, come up here right now. Let's arm wrestle. I will guarantee you will not win. Okay. In fact, I would bargain to say any man here, um, I'll go ahead and take that challenge. You will not win. Maybe Jesse might beat me, but I don't know. Um, I'm, just, I'm just being silly, okay? The idea here is that men are stronger. He's talking about this physical attribute that we generally have. And... It's okay to be a masculine guy. I mean, there's such an attack in our culture on masculinity, not chauvinism. Okay, chauvinism is sinful. Masculinity is God's idea. I like trucks and dirt and grime and, you know, and some women do too. I'm not saying that. But th there's a certain aspect of being a man that's a masculine man that's okay to be a masculine man. Whether you're a business leader or you love eating sawdust, like me, it, it doesn't matter. There's something about that that is important. And the attack upon men in this generation is, is palpable. In the masculine, the toxic masculinity, and these words being said, it's not a biblical idea. More men die in wars than women. Most people that work outside are men. Most people that are incarcerated are men. More people that commit suicide effectively are men because women, almost 90% of the time, do not 
take a path for suicide that is lethal, whereas men do. So when we look at men, men are facing all kinds of things that women generally don't face because 99% of all plumbers are men. And there's this complaint in culture that, that, there, that we should have equity. Well, no, that's sinful. E- equity is not good. It, equality of outcome is not good. We should have equality of access, equality of opportunity. That's not sinful. But just men are just going to do things different than women. And, you know, women, are, they're, they're, they're consuming the social sciences like crazy, and men are still consuming the engineering degrees. It's, it's just the way that it is. We're, it's just this whole social experiment that's been tried. In the, I'm sure you've heard, read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Anybody has it? It's been tried in the Scandinavian countries, and now they've tried to implement equity. And, and what's happened is that the, the society has gone back to being a man and woman based thing, egalitarian. It's just the way that it happens. So, anyway, that's what it means. Respect her as the weaker partner in terms of that. Well, that took a lot to explain. I guess in our generation, it's. And heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will, get this, hinder your prayers. Men, Scripture says, if you mistreat your wife, God will not answer your prayer. Psalm 66, 18, is it? If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. The same principle is here in effect. In fact, in a steeper way for men that you respect and care for your wives and they respect you. That whole marriage that we went to with Dr. Rich, I think his name, where men want respect and women want love. It's, it's a biblical idea. Men love your wives. Women respect your husbands. I think the knee-jerk reaction comes when we when we hear these things, well, Paul's referring to the flesh here. He's talking about men have a, a certain place, and women have not that there's not some great women doing man things, but um, when it comes to men dressing up like women and trying to be in that place of a woman, we understand the culture is going to do that, friends, but when we see this in the church, this is where Paul says, rebuke it, confront it, make sure that you keep it at arm's length. We understand the world's going to be the way it's going to be, and my heart breaks over the young people over the, the, the tw- 28 years I've been at Abundant Life that I've seen go off to college and, and begin living a homosexual lifestyle or something like that because they all of a sudden gravitate toward the world's ideas. It breaks my heart to see, and as many as we've sent out for ministry over the years, or sent to Bible school, and all this wonderful, but there are still some in it that says, God, what happened? It's because there's, there's this lack of a role of a, a masculine man and a real feminine woman. It's, it should be heralded and, and, and trumpeted as the scriptures say. Because God, he says, God will judge in mentally, sexually, He'll ultimately judge them for their lack of insight into this. And Satan's goal is to destroy the spirit of marriage. That's his goal. And when the spirit of prayer is undermined or the importance of prayer is undermined, as he says here, marriage is undermined. Men, love your wives. 
Completeness is promoted by a servant spirit. As men serve their wives and women serve their husbands. Completeness is rewarded when major decisions are, are not made. Or made by both partners. There's completeness when we do that together. Purpose number four. Fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply. You know, God said this to Adam and Eve in verse 20 of Genesis 1, and he repeated it after the flood. He said the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply. Psalm 127, verse 3, the writer says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Praise God for kids. I love my four boys. They're awesome. They love God. And to see them grow and to be a part of their lives that whole time. Pam and I were three days from our, 20, from our seventh year wedding anniversary. And we had our first one. And then five years later, we have four boys. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Right? And now they've all grown up together, wrestled, fought, I mean, just school and soccer and basketball. And they've all played in the worship band or they're running sound or they're, they're teaching classes. They're, they're engaged with Jesus. And it makes me proud. And your children make you proud too when you see them. Even if they struggle, Right? Parents, you see them struggle, and you pray for them. They're having a hard time, but you still love them. They might be going off and doing some whacked-out thing. Maybe they, maybe they pursue drugs. Maybe they're pursuing uh, sexual things that they shouldn't be in. You know that right now, but friends, you pray for them because you loved them, you cared for them, and you hold on to God's promise that he will take care of them. Satan's goal is to make children to, to be a nuisance. My four boys and Fred Meyer, I had the cart, and they're all hanging from me. And, you know, to give Pam a break is a powerful thing. You know, and, and I've changed diapers. I was one of those guys that faithfully changed it. I'm just a diaper changer. The vomit part, I could never handle that. I, I just, it was not, you know, it was like the messiest, nastiest diaper. No, for some reason, that other end was tough for me. But nonetheless, we, and when the boys are born so closely, we changed diapers for eight years. 1.3 in diapers. And so, you know, when they're growing and you have kids, and so I'm in Fred Meyer years ago, and there's kids, and, and Brandon is, is dan he's dancing. Justin's really dancing. He's a whirlwind, right? That's why he's down with the kids today. Right? He plays bass, and we send him right down because he just, just gyrates, I guess. And they're just going and doing this, and they're just boys, you know. And I have sign them a square, to, like a square right here. Like, you know, you go to Fred Meyer, and they got the square and the tiles. I tell Justin, and Justin, stand right here. And, and he, you know how he, and he go. <laughs> After a while, he'd get distracted, and he'd be out of that square altogether. It just didn't happen, right? But they're a blessing. And we're standing there, and I'm. This lady in front of me just ah, is so irresponsible. And I told Pam about it. And it's like, we walked out of the store and Brandon hit Brandon so hard. Here's this seven, six-year-old. And he says, Dad, why does she hate kids? 
There's an idea in the culture that kids are a nuisance. And they're taking the responsibility from parents because the lack of godly parents are not standing up for what's right. So there's a fact concerning the world overpopulation as well. We shouldn't have more kids. How many have heard this one? We shouldn't have more kids. So there's 52.2 million square miles of land in the world, not including Antarctica. I mean, who wants to live there anyway? Of all the people, if they were all brought in the world together in one place, they could stand without touching anyone else in less than 400 square miles. Seattle is 142 square miles. It's about three times the size of Seattle, city limits. Could fit all the people in the world in that area. And from babies to adults, you would be able to fit everyone on earth inside a space three times the area of Seattle, about 8 billion people. And if the Pentagon building were two miles high, you could put everyone that in the world in it. If you had 10 buildings the width of the Pentagon and the height of the entire state building, you could put everybody who had lived and died during the last 100 years in them. You could fit all of man's artifacts, buildings, pavements, highways, structures, all of it together, and the world would add up less than 125,000 square miles, about one-seventh of one percent of the total land area of the world, of which about 40% is very habitable. We often hear overpopulation is driving world hunger in places like India when the reason that they're suffering from hunger is because they won't eat the cows because they believe they're their Uncle Fred when there's over 400 million cows in India. It's because of sin. The United States, Netherlands, and Taiwan export more food and pay farmers not to grow food than they can use in the world. The Netherlands and Taiwan have up to three times the population density of India, and there's no starvation. So, purpose number five, protection. The key to this is godly children, actually. Malachi 2.15 has not, has not made them one. In the flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring... So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. You know, Scripture says that God hates divorce, and we're going to get into that on Wednesday because there's grace there, obviously, and he has reasons for making the statement. But the biggest reason is because he says in Malachi 2, 15 and 16 that it reduces the potential of a godly seed. The key to that is a lifelong commitment to marriage, as said in Jeremiah 29 and and Satan's goal is to scatter families. God's goal is to bring them together. Finally, purpose number six in marriage. Illustration. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If anyone were to approach my wife or try to get in her face. In that moment, Pam rebukes me for this, I wouldn't care about much my repercussions. But what if you get thrown in jail? And I'm, You're going to defend her, right? Come on, guys. Just, 
You're going to defend her no matter what. Now, you may have just had a bone-out argument over the fact that green beans were too squishy. I don't know what it was, but it doesn't matter. In that moment, can't Amy and I, when we were kids, we'd fight like crazy sometimes. And when she got, I would hold her foot, and with her other leg, she would beat me to death with her heel. Just, <laughs> maybe we'd fight, but on the playground, don't mess with my sister. The loving of our wives as Christ loved the church is how Jesus feels about his bride. That he loves you and I, that he has such a concern for you and I, he will defend you. He is your defender when you trust in him. And men, I don't know how you feel about being a bride, but we're called the bride of Christ in Scripture as the church. And God takes care of his bride. If you are part of his bride, he will care for you. He takes care of you. And it goes beyond just the, just the maybe touchy-feely needs we have in this life that we come to God and we offer him up our smorgasbord. God, I, I need this, I want that, I desire, I want this, I want that. And, and that's all, you know, maybe okay. But the biggest thing is he has saved you from your sin. He has bought you from hell. He has redeemed you in spite of what you've done toward him, in spite of how you feel about him, in spite of the argument that you're having or the contention you're having about what he's saying for you to do in his word, he still loves you as his bride. He cares for you as his bride. He's going to take care of you by his grace. It is by his grace you're saved, not by yourselves, not of yourselves, not by your strength. So God says, I don't care what you've done. The example of Christ as this kind of servant is made evident as Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon himself the form of a servant, even unto death, even the death of a cross. He cares for his bride. We are the bride. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad. And give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I want to ask my bride to come to the piano. This illustration part of marriage is such a powerful thing, because not only does, do we see the goodness of marriage that we have in this world, but it shows us this profound love that God has for us, no matter who we are and where we've been. That he is a faithful husband, no matter how unfaithful the bride is. How many times in scripture through the prophets did God use the illustration of marriage in referring to his people? Although you've been unfaithful. Remember uh, Hosea and Gomer? God tells Hosea <coughs> to marry this prostitute. Marries her, and what does she do? Well, she becomes unfaithful. And she gets down, and she gets taken advantage of. She gets beaten and bloodied and left on the street to die. And what does God say? Hosea, go pick her up. Bring her home. Heal her wounds. Take care of her. This is how I love my people, he says. You've never done something so great, so grand, so big. You're not in caught in some habitual sin so far. You haven't sinned so sexually so much. You haven't done enough for the loving Savior of yours, your husband, to come and pick you up from whatever gutter 
and draw you to himself. <laughs> I mean, come on, that's really good preaching. And I, I'm saying that's of the Holy Spirit. That's not Larry, because Larry can't talk that good. But the Lord picks us up. And he loves us. He cares for us. I don't care what kind of sexual sin maybe you'll have in the past, maybe years ago when you were a young person and you're thinking of it now, the grace and the blood of Jesus can take what you've done and use it for his glory. No matter how dirty or ugly or bad or poor or addicted it was, it doesn't matter. It's for his glory.